Today's Binge Mode is brought to you by YouTube Music. YouTube Music is a new app that combines everything you expect from a streaming service with the magic of YouTube to bring everything to life. With YouTube Music Premium, you'll get ad-free music that plays with the screen off or while using other apps. Finally, get music whenever you want it, even if you're offline. Download the new YouTube Music app today and start a free 30-day trial. Then just pay $9.99 per month. Terms and restrictions apply. Warning! Binge mode contains adult content. That's right. What kind of adult content, you ask? Well, you just got to hang out and find out. But it'll be there. I'll tell you. So if you don't want to hear that, please check out the Ringer NBA show. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why the dragon's blood is a bit dusty, mm. please proceed with extreme caution. And now, binge mode. And now, said Slughorn, shifting massively in his seat with the air of a compare introducing his star act. Harry Potter. Where to begin? I feel I barely scratched the surface when we met over the summer. He contemplated Harry for a moment as though he was a particularly large and succulent piece of pheasant, then said, The chosen one they're calling you now. Harry said nothing. Belby, McGlagan, and Zabini were all staring at him. Of course, said Slughorn, watching Harry closely. There have been rumors for years. I remember when, well, after that terrible night, Lily, James, and you survived, and the word was that you must have powers beyond... The Ordinary. Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Road Harry Potter. Yes. I'm Mally Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Oh! great website. Joining me today, now that he's finished trying to find the perfect birthday present for his good friend Draco Malfoy. How about four walls and a (laughs) door with bars on it? (laughs) It's Ringer Senior Creative and your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal, Hmm. next time you can show me how it's done, master of mystery. For now, it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe whether you're partial to Madame Malkins or Twill Fit and Taddings. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. I'll go to whichever one doesn't have racist buying robes. Five points and stars for Binge Mode. Also, Twitter, Instagram, mash that follow button at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And feel free to apply to the very selective Facebook group, which is only for Binge Road fans, and which is an excellent place to share stories about your patented daydream charms experience. Yesterday on Binge Road Harry Potter, we explored how perspective shapes the first two chapters of Harry Mm -hmm. Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters three through seven. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. deep. On details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon, taking the entire series Mm. into account from the moment we climb into the luggage rack. So pass the pheasant. Try not to choke. Well, it's very dry as part of the problem. (laughs) 
<laughs> because it's time to head to the Slug Club. Now, mm-hmm. Raxpert got you. <laughs> They're real, you know. I thought I felt one zooming around in here before it makes our brains go fuzzy. Let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Prince Chapters 3 through 7 by climbing aboard the Scarlet Steam Engine of Plot, the Hogwarts Express Choo Choo. Choo Choo. After two chapters away from Harry, we are back with the Chosen One, just in time for an eventful summer. Dumbledore arrives at Privet Drive, reprimands the Dursleys, and whisks Harry away, taking him first on a recruitment trip for one Horace Slughorn. Old Sluggy is a portly, unnerving man with a penchant for prestige, and he agrees to return to his old teaching post at Hogwarts, but only after a dash of help from Harry. Next, Dumbledore shepherds Harry to the Weasleys' care, where he, Ron, and Hermione receive their owl results. Visit Fred and George. Very successful joke shop, blowing up the joke shop. Just to be clear, though, not blowing up the joke shop the way the movie blows up the burrow. No, no, no. no. (laughs) It's blowing up as in it is very successful. And discover that Malfoy is up to something suspicious. What is he not? On the train back to Hogwarts, Harry attempts to spy on Malfoy, but he must have learned stealth from Tonks because Malfoy easily, easily spots him. As the train pulls into Hogsmeade Station, Draco paralyzes Harry with Petrificus Totalis, breaks his nose by stamping on his face, then hides him beneath his own invisibility cloak, leaving him helpless to prevent the Hogwarts Express from carrying him back to London. What a piece of shit. Draco Malfoy is. Tough stuff for our guy Harry here. I'll re- remind everyone that I was team hit Draco with a rock at the beginning of Goblet of Fire with the <laughs> World Cup. Yes, your murder the child take is established on the record. I didn't say murder. I just said beat his ass. <laughs> Jason? Yes. People expect you to have cooler friends than us. Do they really, though? <laughs> I think they might. Oh. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through mm. our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters three through seven of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince is allegiance. Chapter three, will and won't. Ah, Harry is with us at last. As we spent quite a bit of time exploring on our most recent episode, The first two chapters of Prince are really astonishing departures, testaments to the power of perspective and emblems of J.K.'s ever-expanding skill. There's just one thing about them. After two real muggled years away from Harry following the heart-rending events of order, we really miss our buddy. I want to know how he's holding up. Harry's fourth year of school also ended with a stew of courage and tragedy, and that's made finding himself encased in Privet Drive prison last summer, isolated and uninformed, so mad. We want to believe, after the rawness and candor that he and Dumbledore shared in the closing pages of Order, that things will be different this summer. And after two full chapters, it's time to find out. Our first glimpse of Harry finds him like so many teenage boys, snoring loudly in a chair, his face pressed against his bedroom window where he's fallen asleep. Unlike his unmarked peers, though, Harry doesn't pass out playing Fortnite or whatever the 1996 video game equivalent would be, or watching porn. He was attempting to stand vigil in his filthy room, which is cluttered with trash and spellbooks and newspapers, including one bearing the headline, Harry Potter, the chosen one. Again, excellent SEO. And exploring 
sourced reports that the showdown at the ministry and ensuing arrests centered on, quote, the fabled hollow prophecy. The article containing a, listen, surprising number of facts for a Daily Prophet screed, but sadly none of Rita's signature flair, states that, quote, some are going so far as to call Potter the chosen one, believing that the prophecy names him as the only one who will be able to rid us of he who must not be named. After the opening chapters performed an engorgious spell on our minds, catching us up on off-season events for the government and the Death Eaters and the wizarding world at large, this article instantly orients us back to Harry's perspective. After a year of seeing his name dragged through the dragon dung-strewn mud in the Daily Prophet, he's back to being an object of obsession. And somehow, even for a boy who's been famous since he was a baby, even for a boy who entered a world where everyone knew his name before he understood why, he's now experiencing an even more advanced form of infatuation. From one snippet, we can see that Harry's no longer just positioned as the boy who lived, but also the boy who will kill, the boy who will prevail, the boy who will save the day. What a burden. Who will help him shoulder it? The ministry? Hmm. Well, the next article we see, another effortless technique here from JK, catches us up further on the events of the summer by panning through Harry's room, our eyes falling onto the news that he's had to process that has come to literally surround him in the weeks since we left King's Cross. It's about our new friend, Rufus succeeding Fudge. And immediately we see that Fudge's muttering in the other minister about Scrimgeour needing better luck with Dumbledore than he had wasn't just the product of Corn's bruised ego. From the book, the appointment has largely been greeted with enthusiasm by the wizarding community, though rumors of a rift between the new minister and Albus Dumbledore, newly reinstated chief warlock of the wizen gamut, surfaced within hours of Scrimgeour's taking office. Within hours! Unity has been a heavily preached goal. Think of Dumbledore's speech to the school following the death of Cedric Diggory. Think of the Sorting Hats plea to the school at the start of order. We've long lamented the breach between Fudge and Dumbledore. What Albus himself called a parting of the ways, but we allowed ourselves to hope that things would improve with a different leader who had a different relationship to the truth and different receptiveness to Dumbledore's particular style. With one line and one newspaper clipping, that hope for a new strong allegiance between Dumbledore's forces and the ministry against Voldemort is already deflating. Another article bears the title, Ministry Guarantees Student Safety, which, let's be honest, would be a first. <laughs> no safe for Guarantee place. is strong. Very. <laughs> Though it's largely obscured by Hedwig's cage, we see enough of the article to understand that all jokes about the death trap that is Hogwarts Castle aside, there is an alliance at play here. The Ministry and Dumbledore may still disagree on many things, including, as we'll soon see, how to involve Harry in public relations efforts, but they're working together to put more protections than ever in place at Hogwarts because it's no mystery to anyone with a shred of sense that the castle and its inhabitants are a likely target for Voldemort. Insights into more safety measures lay on the floor in the form of a purple Ministry safety leaflet near Harry's open very messy trunk. The pamphlet is proof that no matter what's going on between Dumbledore and Scrimgeour, the ministry is, at long last, openly aligned with the truth. Voldemort is back, and the public needs to know how to try to protect itself against him. Guidelines include not leaving the house alone, which, yikes, shit is pretty bad, if that's what they're saying. Practicing security measures, such as shield and disillusionment charms. And agreeing on security questions with friends and family to try to suss out imposters. <laughs> Ours would be, how many cups of coffee do I have every day? There's no more ignoring or sugarcoating, but rather clear instruction to report friends or family who are behaving strangely in case they've been put under the imperious curse. 
Every item in the leaflet foreshadows something that Harry and co. will face over the course of the book. From Harry's side-along apparition with Dumbledore, to Rose Murda falling under the Imperious Curse, to the most indelible of all. A warning not to enter any buildings above which the Dark Mark appears, which Harry and Dumbledore will ignore when they fly toward the mark above the Astronomy Tower, a bat-signal honeypot used to lure them. And of course, the spine-tingling mention that Death Eaters may be using in Fury which Harry and Dumbledore will encounter firsthand in the cave. We don't know at this point in the story what and Fury are, but the panicked freezing in the pamphlet, the effort to stress the need to report any such sighting immediately all caps, is terrifying. And this comes after a mention about the Dark Mark. After. Like, they're building up to it. What could possibly be worse than a sign telling you Voldemort and his minions have killed? Harry's still sleeping, his hand on a piece of parchment covered in Dumbledore's signature thin, slanting writing. From the book, Harry had read this letter so often since its arrival three days ago that although it had been delivered in a tightly furled scroll, it now lay quite flat. There's something so endearing about this, especially when juxtaposed with the Chosen One label. Everyone expects something of Harry, but all he's ever wanted is to feel supported and loved, included and informed, understood and in possession of the truth. He was so angry last summer because of what he'd suffered through, but also because life felt unmanageable, absent those closest to him confiding in him and rallying around him. Now he's holding on to a letter that promises that that's all changed, locked into place by the magnetic pull of its promise. Dear Harry, if it's convenient to you, I shall call at number four, Privet Drive, this coming Friday at 11 p.m. to escort you to the borough, where you have been invited to spend the remainder of your school holidays, if you are agreeable. I shall also be glad of your assistance in a matter to which I hope to attend on the way to the borough. I shall explain this more fully when I see you. Kindly send your answer by return of this owl. Hoping to see you this Friday, I am yours most sincerely, Albus Dumbledore. It's hard to overstate what these words signify. Every little gesture, I am yours most sincerely. And the turn of phrase, if it is convenient to you, if you are agreeable, conveys Dumbledore's desire to... Make up for what happened last summer to appease Harry, to make him feel fully vested, even somewhat in control, though of course he isn't. Dumbledore is still setting, will always set the terms. The overall message, though, is a definitive declaration of loyalty, a following through on the pledge Dumbledore made to Harry in the Lost Prophecy when he vowed to let him in at last. They can try to get the Hogwarts houses to unite and the establishment to align with the populace good, but the devotion between Harry and Dumbledore is more important than any of that. The mentor, the guide, the prophet helping the hero on his journey, and in this case, asking the hero to help him, a quiet but important subversion of the traditional trope and one of the many moments that foreshadows the ultimate questions and answers about whether Harry is a pawn, a being with full agency, or both. Now we understand why Harry has fallen asleep with his breath misting the window. He's waiting for Dumbledore's promised arrival, having sent his yes reply faster than Marietta snitched. We also now understand why his room is such a mess. He can't quite allow himself to believe that Dumbledore is really coming. Yeah. This is pretty heartbreaking. Harry wants to buy in. He wants to believe that things have changed, but he's been hurt too many times before. The prospect of not only leaving the Dursleys after a mere two weeks, but doing so under Dumbledore's charge seems like a fanciful dream. He even considers the possibility that the letter might be someone's idea of a prank. Quote, all he could do now was wait. Either Dumbledore was going to come or he was not. This is one of those highly relatable Harry moments. We may not have magical powers, much to our dismay, but we all know what it feels like to try to tamp down our own expectations so that we're not crushed under the weight of our own disappointment. But as soon as the clock strikes 11, the streetlights go out. Dumbledore, 
with the old put outer. <laughs> Quote, Harry awoke as though the sudden darkness were an alarm. He looks out to the street. Quote, a tall figure in a long billowing cloak was walking up the garden path. Albus Dumbledore is back in Privet Drive, where we first met him and Harry on that night 15 years ago when he placed baby Harry, a letter in his fist and a lightning-shaped cut on his forehead, in the Dursleys' care. Remember from back then, in stone, how the passage went. Nothing like this man had ever been seen on Privet Drive. Shortly thereafter, we got the words, Albus Dumbledore didn't seem to realize that he had just arrived in a street where everything from his name to his boots was unwelcome. But now that couldn't be further from the truth. The Dursleys still feel that way, sure. And will feel that way even more keenly in the coming pages. But to Harry, Dumbledore's arrival is more welcome than the breath of life. It's a promise fulfilled, an allegiance sealed, a new phase of their relationship and their shared fight embarked upon at last. As Harry's frantically throwing his possessions into his trunk, the doorbell rings and Vernon shouts, Who the blazes is calling at this time of night? Harry has, of course, forgotten his elder Dursleys that Dumbledore is coming. Not to be fair that things went super smoothly when they had a heads up about the Weasleys coming by. Good evening. You must be Mr. Dursley. I dare say Harry has told you I would be coming for him. <laughs> Unbelievable. Vernon's wearing a puce dressing gown and gaping at his visitor like a buffoon, which is not lost on the master of big Dumbledore energy. Judging by your look of stunned disbelief, Harry did not warn you that I was coming, said Dumbledore pleasantly. However, let us assume that you have invited me warmly into your house. It is unwise to linger overlong on doorsteps in these troubled times. This moment quietly deserves a spot in the pantheon of Dumbledore flexes. So good. Vernon is stunned into silence as Dumbledore enters their home and compliments their flourishing foliage from the book. It might have been the blatant wizardishness of his appearance, but it might, too, have been that even Uncle Vernon could sense that here was a man whom it would be very difficult to bully. Descriptions like this are growing increasingly common. Dumbledore's visible strength and prowess, undeniable and irrepressible, particularly notable here in the light of the injury, which we'll soon find out about. When Dumbledore spots Harry, his excellent, excellent assessment snaps Vernon to attention at last. I don't mean to be rude, he began in a tone that threatened rudeness in every syllable. And then Dumbledore says, Yet sadly, accidental rudeness occurs alarmingly often. Best to say nothing at all, my dear man. Ah, and this must be Petunia. Dumbledore is playing with his food here, and it is marvelous to see. When Petunia, astonished to be interrupted in her pre-bed kitchen wipe-down, steps out, Dumbledore says, We have corresponded, of course. And Harry thinks that he's referring to the howler from the prior year. But as we know, there's also the letter that Dumbledore left with Harry as a baby, informing Petunia of the protective magic that Dumbledore was using to seal Lily's sacrifice. And, as we'll learn in Hallows, there was another exchange before that. As a girl, Petunia wrote to Dumbledore asking if she, too, could attend Hogwarts school. As we saw when she honored the Howler, she and Dumbledore have been aligned under their own promise. But that doesn't make it any easier that the man who made her realize she could never have what she coveted is now in her home reminding her of everything that she lost. Dudley pops in, too, and the silence stretches painfully. From the book, shall we assume that you have invited me into your sitting room, Dumbledore says. Harry's eager to get going, but Dumbledore, who, quote, looked quite extraordinarily out of place, wants to chat first with the Dursleys, and it's much safer to do so in the protected confines of Privet Drive, where Voldemort cannot touch Harry, than out in the open. 
We shall trespass upon your aunt and uncle's hospitality only a little longer. Vernon doesn't seem too keen on this idea, but Dumbledore doesn't really give him a choice, whipping out his hand and magicking the Dursley trio into their own sofa. Much of this chapter is about finally giving the Dursleys their comeuppance for how they've treated Harry. But as always, try to at least take a moment to consider this encounter from their point of view, another intrusion into their home, another godlike being moving them around like mites. As Dumbledore puts his wand back in his pocket, Harry notices that the headmaster's right hand is blackened and shriveled. From the book, it looked as though his flesh had been burned away. Harry didn't hear what we did in Spinner's End, but to us, it's clear. This is the injury Snape was talking about. This, as we'll come to learn, is the result of Dumbledore succumbing to temptation after securing the ring. This is the curse that has put his life on a countdown clock, tragically, but also in a way that allows him to proceed unencumbered in his efforts to thwart Voldemort. Harry tries to ask about the hand, but Dumbledore silences him, telling him, later. Harry takes a seat, and Dumbledore addresses his silent, unwilling hosts. Quote, I would assume that you were going to offer me refreshment, but the evidence so far suggests that that would be optimistic to the point of foolishness. He flicks his wand again, and a dusty bottle of mead appears, pouring generous portions into five glasses, and Harry sips Madame Rosemurda's finest oak-matured mead. Mead? course, that will play a prominent role later in the story when Draco manages to get a tainted bottle to Slughorn, who then inadvertently poisons Ron with it. And Harry finds as he sips that he had, quote, never tasted anything like it before, but enjoyed it immensely. And so begins the ample teen drinking in Half-Blood Prince. Ah, the Brits. The Dursleys are trying to ignore their glasses, which keep bopping them in the head. Quote, Harry cannot suppress a suspicion that Dumbledore was rather enjoying himself. Dumbledore gets down to brass tacks. Sirius's will was discovered a week ago, and he left Harry everything. This is painful to read for many reasons. Of course, it forces us and Harry to think about Sirius's death. What's more, it's impossible to read this without thinking ahead to the reading of Dumbledore's will in Hallows and the significance of those bequests. Here, Dumbledore explains that Harry adds, quote, a reasonable amount of gold to your account at Gringotts. You can give some to the Weasleys when the filmmakers blow up their house, Harry, but you probably won't. And inherits all of Sirius's possessions. This includes, as Dumbledore next explains, the house, 12 Grimmauld Place. Amid Vernon's vile, greedy intrusions, his godfather's dead. He's been left a house. Harry starts to tell Dumbledore that he can keep using the house as order headquarters. From the book, Harry never wanted to set foot in number 12 Grimmauld Place again if he could help it. He thought he'd be haunted forever by the memory of Sirius prowling its dark, musty rooms alone, imprisoned within the place he'd wanted so desperately to leave. That house is now, for Harry, what it already was for Sirius, a physical manifestation, a reminder of a stifling grief that he just wants to get away from. Allegiances aren't always to people. Sometimes they're to places, things, and ideas, and sometimes they're stubborn, foisted upon us despite the pain that causes. But Dumbledore isn't just seeking Harry's generosity. Black family tradition decrees that only a male on the direct line bearing the name Black can inherit the house. And so the order has temporarily vacated premises until it can confirm that Sirius's will trumps the magic that ensures the home pass to a pureblood. Because if they're wrong, the house likely goes not to Harry, but to Sirius's eldest relative, Bellatrix Lestrange. When Harry hears this possibility, he springs to his feet. No, he said. Sirius's killer in his home is a violation that Harry cannot bear. So how to test it? Well, by summoning creature, of course. If Harry has inherited the house, he's also inherited the house elf. 
The enslavement of the house elves is a disgrace, a forced allegiance between elf and master. Now, that shameful institution will prove where creatures' loyalties currently lie. Creature, when summoned, is shrieking that he won't go to Harry. Won't, won't, won't. And Harry says, I don't care. It's amazing to think about how far these two will come together and how taking just a moment to understand Creature's miserable existence will unlock such empathy in Harry in Deathly Hallows. Here, now, he feels none of that. He feels only rage at the role the Creature played in Sirius's death. Quote, I don't care, I don't want him. Dumbledore notes the Creature going to Bellatrix will prove quite problematic for the Order of the Phoenix. He knows too much. Quote, give him an order. If he has passed into your ownership, he will have to obey. As Creature continues to wail, Harry shouts, Creature, shut up! And the elf goes silent. Mystery solved. He's Harry's, and so is Grimald Place. They agree that Harry should send Creature to Hogwarts, where he can be monitored. Undoubtedly an effective strategy for the Order, but also a cruel choice that pays no mind to how attached Creature is to his home. Dumbledore then asks if he's all packed up. No. (laughs) Doubtful that I would turn up, he says. Love to see Dumbledore so self-aware. Harry jets off to pack, then returns to the living room. From the book, nobody was talking. Dumbledore was humming quietly, apparently quite at ease, but the atmosphere was thicker than cold custard, and Harry did not dare look at the Dursleys. As he said, Professor, I'm ready now. At his ease. Just one more thing, Dumbledore says, and he turns to the Dursleys to tell them that Harry will come of age in one year's time. In the wizarding world, as he clarifies for them, that's 17, not 18. He goes on reminding them that Voldemort is back. He's back. And that Harry is in even greater danger than he was when Dumbledore left him on their step. From the book, expressing the hope that you would care for him as though he were your own. That hope, in other words, that the devotion of family, of common decency, would lead them to bring Harry into not only their home, but their hearts. From the book, Dumbledore paused, and although his voice remained light and calm and he gave no obvious sign of anger, Harry felt a kind of chill emanating from him and noticed that the Dursleys drew very slightly closer together. You did not do as I asked. You have never treated Harry as a son. He has known nothing but neglect and often cruelty at your hands. The best that can be said is that he has at least escaped the appalling damage you have inflicted upon the unfortunate boys sitting between you. Dumbledore, of course, is not blameless here. He put Harry with muggles who could never tell him about his own history, about his own world. He left Harry there even after it was clear that these people were mistreating him. But he had his reasons. Reasons that he finally explained to Harry at the end of last school year. Reasons that kept Harry alive, even if never whole. But he's now channeling both his guilt and his rage. Rightly, justly shaming the Dursleys for their horrid disregard for Harry's happiness and humanity. In attacking the lack of loyalty that the Dursleys ever forged with Harry, Dumbledore is solidifying his own. He cannot change the past or his role in it, but he can heap these just desserts. He explains that the protective magic will cease the moment Harry turns 17. Quote, in other words, at the moment he becomes a man. Bad news, Dumbledore, that's actually going to be with Ginny by the lake, but you know, (laughs) we'll let it slide. He asked the Dursleys that they allow Harry to return once more next summer to ensure his continued protection until his 17th birthday. Dudley looks confused, Vernon stuck, Petunia flushed. Then Dumbledore and Harry make their leave, and Dumbledore sends Harry's possessions, Sans Invisibility Cloak, which he wants Harry to keep with them, to the burrow. Quote, Dumbledore then waved his wand again, and the front door opened onto cool, misty darkness. And now, Harry, let us step into the night and pursue that flighty temptress. Adventure. What a great line. Great line. Chapter four, Horace Slughorn. Harry's relationship with Dumbledore is the pivot point in his life. 
It was Dumbledore, with an assist from Hagrid, who shepherded Harry to safety on the evening that Voldemort attacked and murdered his parents, who conceived of using the protective charm to seal Lily's blood sacrifice by placing Harry with her blood relatives, the Dursleys indelibly shaping his childhood, who swore Snape to secretly protect Harry. It's been a highly imbalanced relationship, of course. Dumbledore vastly more experienced and powerful as a chess master, and he holds his strategies and tactics very, very close to his vest. Harry, though growing into his own, is still a kid. But after the catastrophe at the Ministry at the end of Order, when Dumbledore's secrecy and Harry's stubbornness and naivete and dismay at being held at arm's length ended up costing Sirius his life, Dumbledore is recalibrating. The new Dumbledore... It's more inclusive, more open with information. He writes letters. (laughs) He's always had Harry's allegiance, but now he's striving to place the relationship on a more even footing so that Harry feels supported, informed, and empowered. And it's weird. Harry feels awkward as they set out, thinking to himself that they've never properly interacted outside of Hogwarts. Remember, Dumbledore didn't look at or speak to Harry at his hearing last year, for example. And recalling the way he raged at the headmaster when they last spoke. But Dumbledore seems chill. Keep your wand at the ready, Harry, he said brightly. But I thought I'm not allowed to use magic outside of school, sir. If there is an attack, said Dumbledore, I give you permission to use any counter jinx or curse that might occur to you. However, I do not think you need to worry about being attacked tonight. Why not, sir? You with me, motherfucker. (laughs) That line, a moment that brilliantly foreshadows the inverse to come when the pair escapes the cave. I am not worried, Harry. I am with you. Make no mistake, here, now, Dumbledore may be letting Harry ride shotgun, but the headmaster is in the driver's seat. Harry takes a hold of Dumbledore's uninjured arm, and the headmaster apparates them away from Privet Drive to the village of Budley Babberton. Sure. Charming. It's Harry's first time apparating, and boy, does it suck. On the way to their destination, Dumbledore asks Harry whether his scar has been hurting at all, and ah, it has not. Harry's been confused about that, in fact, having assumed that it would be burning constantly now that Voldemort's back. Not that he's complaining. Dumbledore, however, thought otherwise and seemed satisfied to learn that his suspicion was correct. We're heading into an entire book here of Dumbledore feeling satisfied that his suspicions were correct. (laughs) Quote, Lord Voldemort has finally realized dangerous access to his thoughts and feelings you have been enjoying. It appears that he is now employing occlumency against you. Ah, okay. The pathway between Harry and Voldemort never signified allegiance. Allegiance implies intent, the desire to unite. But it was still one of the most critical ties in the series, a binding, albeit unwittingly, of the story's hero and villain. And now it appears that bridge is, at least for the time being, off the board. That means less access and intel for Harry, but also less vulnerability. No more dreams, no more visions, no more flashes of thoughts and feelings that aren't his own. And we hope no more catfishing via implanted (laughs) vision. Harry asks what they're up to, and Dumbledore hilariously Says, ah, yes, of course, I haven't told you. No. Credible. You have not. It's <laughs> incredible. <laughs> Dumbledore tells Harry that they're, once again, one staff member short. Sorry, Dolores. And then he's taking him along to help persuade one of his former colleagues to unretire bitch. Telling Harry, <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> Progress. Notice, though, that despite fainting at asking for Harry's consent in his letter, Dumbledore isn't close to trusting Harry enough to actually asking him if he'd like to help or sharing any details about the task at hand. And when Harry flat out is like, how can I help? Dumbledore gets cagey. Oh, I think we'll find a use for you. You're the bait, my guy. You ever see a a mousetrap? You're the cheese. (laughs) (laughs) 
They talk as they walk, and Harry broaches Fudge's sacking, asking Dumbledore what he thinks about Scrimgeour. The prophet, recall, has been reporting that the two men are already at loggerheads. Over what we'll come to learn centers on the ministry wanting to use Harry as, there's no really kind way to put this, but as a propaganda tool. Dumbledore is basically like, ah, he's fine. He's fine. He's fine. He's fine. (laughs) He says, Rufus is a man of action and having fought dark wizards for most of his working life. Does not underestimate Lord Voldemort. Anything else? No. Okay? Great. (laughs) Dumbledore clearly choosing his words with care, offering quite faint praise, but more insight by what's left unsaid. Nothing about trust. When Dumbledore winces upon using his hand to point... Not, not like to lift something, not to try to cook a stew, just to point. Harry again asks about the headmaster's blackened appendage. And Dumbledore says, I have no time to explain now. It's a thrilling tale. I wish to do it justice. Same old Albus, deflecting, withholding, yet also encouraging enough with his mannerisms, with his tone, that Harry feels he can keep asking questions. So he mentions the ministry leaflet, and after Dumbledore mocks the security question advice— You have not asked me, for instance, what is my favorite flavor of jam (laughs) to check that I am indeed Professor Dumbledore, not an imposter. And then adding, for future reference, Harry, it is raspberry. (laughs) Although, of course, (laughs) if I were a Death Eater, I would have been sure to research my own jam preferences (laughs) before impersonating myself. I feel like raspberry is a pretty run-in-the-mill flavor for Dumbledore. I'm surprised. Yeah, I thought it would be something like gosberry or something. Or like earwax, you know? Alas, earwax. (laughs) No? Cockroach cluster? Disgusting. Surely a lemon. Sure. Well, he loves lemon drops. Harry asks about Inferi, and Dumbledore explains that they are, in essence, zombies. Quote, they are corpses, dead bodies that have been bewitched to do a dark wizard's bidding. He says they haven't been seen since Voldemort was last powerful, but that he, quote, killed enough people to make an army of them, of course. This is so fitting, such a symbolic contrast to Harry. On the one side, we have a boy who fights by teaching and learning by surrounding himself with friends and mentors. On the other side, we have a creature so incapable of love, so remorseless and pitiless that he surrounds himself with human shields. In the book's climax, in the cave, we will see the manifestation of this, a literal piece of Voldemort's soul, or at least the stand-in locket, encircled by the unwilling allies that death and destruction made. They arrive at the abode of Dumbledore's former colleague, and it's immediately clear that something's wrong. The front door is off its hinges. Wands out, Dumbly and Harry enter the house. From the book, a scene of total devastation met their eyes. By all appearances, a desperate fight took place here. Furniture overturned, a piano laying on its side, a gory smear of blood decorating the walls. Harry sucks in his breath. Not pretty, is it? Says Dumbledore heavily. Yes, something horrible has happened here. Then Dumbledore pokes an armchair hard with the end of his (laughs) wand, and the chair goes, ouch. (laughs) Welcome to our story, Horace Slughorn. The chair transforms into, quote, an enormously fat, bald old man (laughs) who says, there was no need to stick the wand in that hard. It hurt. (laughs) Slughorn, rubbing his belly, asks what gave him away. From the book, he seemed remarkably unabashed for a man who had just been discovered (laughs) pretending to be an armchair. We're learning a lot about this character right away. Yes. Dumbledore tells him it was the absence of the dark mark. Knew there was something, Horace replies. Okay, this man is not above planting a fake dark mark, which would absolutely terrify (laughs) anyone who saw it just to avoid being discovered. Concerning. Yes. But he also seems like a pretty cheerful guy and Uh has a very 
cute walrusy hipster mustache. Love it. Lots to digest here and a lot to clean up, but that's what friends are for. Albus and Horace tackle the cleanup together. And after they finish chatting about the type of blood sluggy pasted all over the walls, it's Dragon, he notices the young man accompanying Albus in particular. The scar on his forehead. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Ah, so this is what Dumbledore meant when he said he'd find a use for Harry. Slughorn's weakness, as we quickly glean, and as we'll learn in much greater detail over the course of the story, as we come to understand the devastating effects, is that he's a social animal, a networker, a name dropper, a climber. He loves aligning with people of influence, people of note, and he collects them like action figures. And here, standing before him, is Harry Potter, a limited edition chosen one. Dumbledore knows his man, and it should be said he knows his bait. Dumbly, let us not overlook, is brazenly using Harry here, serving him up as a icy, plump piece mm. of crystallized pineapple for Horace to gobble up. But Slughorn is shrewd too. So that's how you thought you persuade me, is it? Well, the answer's no, Albus. Okay, but... Surely there's time for one drink before we go, Dumbledore says. Listen, a lot of drinking. Just again, a lot of drinking. It's just an observation. Dumbledore directs Harry to a very specific chair. And Harry, quote, took the seat with a distinct impression that Dumbledore, for some reason, wanted to keep him as visible as possible. This is pretty gross. (laughs) Love our guy, Aldous. Truly love our guy, Aldous. Great guy. But this is supposed to be a time of trust and real camaraderie for Harry and Albus. Just tell Harry that Slughorn can't resist a famous name. Let him decide if he wants to serve as a pawn, if he wants to be the bait. Dumbledore doesn't do that. He makes small talk, all part of his plan. He asks his old pal how he's been. Not well, it turns out. Slughorn, you see, is long in the tooth. Past his prime. Quote, weak chest, wheezy, rheumatism too, can't move like I used to. Well, that's to be expected. Old age, fatigue, which, listen, is just like literally what I say to Jason Isaac and Cram every day. It's very tough for Tom Brady out here. (laughs) (laughs) All the while, we can feel how much effort it's taking Slughorn to not just stare down Harry and try to slurp him up. Horace's business is attention after all. Dumbledore, plays to the old man's pride in order to gain his allegiance. He notes that Sluggy can't be in that bad of a state considering how quickly he conjured up his very detailed ruse. And on delay, Slughorn was in the bath. (laughs) Two minutes, that's all. (laughs) A bad for old man. Slughorn wants his creature comforts and his peace, yes. But he's not too frail to drop a punch below the belt. Well, maybe you ought to think about retirement yourself, said Slughorn bluntly. His pale, gooseberry eyes had found Dumbledore's injured hand. Reactions not what they were, I see. Dumbledore doesn't deny it, rather. From the book, he shrugged, spread his hands wide as though to say that old age had its compensations. And Harry noticed a ring on his uninjured hand that he'd never seen Dumbledore wear before. It was large, rather clumsily made of what looked like gold. and was set with a heavy black stone that had cracked down the middle. Slughorn's eyes lingered for a moment on the ring, too, and Harry saw a tiny frown momentarily crease his wide forehead. Ooh. I love this so much. So many things to note here. First, this is, of course, the ring. Marvolo gaunts one of Voldemort's horcruxes containing, unknown to Voldemort, the Resurrection Stone. Rereading this, knowing what the ring is. Imagine if, like, Voldemort at fucking Antiques Roadshow 
<laughs> Rereading this, knowing what the ring is, knowing what the stone is, knowing what the ring has already cost Dumbledore, it's shocking to consider him wearing it in this. <laughs> it really is. It looks great with my robe. <laughs> but it's not a fashion statement. We'll see him return the ring to his office soon. This is, we can deduce, a moment of magnificent manipulation. As we'll yes. soon learn, Dumbledore doesn't just want his old pal around. He needs a memory that Slughorn refuses to give him. The memory that confirms that Voldemort sought to make more than one Horcrux. When young Tom Riddle asked Sluggy about Horcruxes, asked him if seven wasn't the most powerfully magical number, he was wearing this very ring. Dumbledore is trying to trigger Slughorn's guilt and shame over helping Tom Riddle with this, trying to prime him to confess at last. He doesn't need Slughorn to fall into line because he wants to repent. He just needs the information in Slughorn's head. That tiny frown on Slughorn's forehead, that product of recognition, is the start that Dumbledore needs. He continues their chat. Who is this whole display for? Dumbledore asks. Me or the Death Eaters? Slughorn tries to deflect. What would the Death Eaters want with a poor, broken-down old buffer like me, he says. But Dumbledore's ready. They'd want to use a gifted man like him to help coerce, torture, and murder others, of course. And based on everything we know and will come to know about the Death Eaters, they wouldn't care if it was willingly. Think of how they'll use Mr. Ollivander. A person's knowledge and skill can be precious weapons, even if that person has no desire to align with the Dark Lord. Slughorn gives in, saying he hasn't even given them the chance to make a pitch for his allegiance. Quote, I've been on the move for a year, never stay in one place more than a week. The headmaster is impressed, but observes that this must be an exhausting existence for one with a weak chest and rheumatism and all the rest. Why not settle down at Hogwarts and earn a paycheck to boot? There's no safer place, you know. No dice, saith the slug. Quote, if you're going to tell me my life would be more peaceful at that pestilential school, you can save your breath out of this. <laughs> I might have been in hiding, but some funny rumors have reached me since Dolores Umbridge left. If that's how you treat teachers these days. An Umbridge dunk leads to a hairy laugh, which catches the slug's attention, which causes him to look at that scar. The hook is set. Uh-huh. Dumbledore is softened sluggy up, and so now it's time to play his trump card. Albus retreats to the privy to let Harry's innate chosen one glow work its intoxicating magic upon Horace Slughorn's imagination. Don't think I don't know why he's brought you, he says to Harry while warming his buttocks by the fire as one does. Horace drinks in the sight of Harry, then issues the assessment that's now so routine that Harry's grown to find it a bit wearying. You look like your father, you know, except for the eyes. And Harry finishes the last part for Slughorn, but Horace is not dismayed. Mm. Just gazing at Harry made him think of Lily, who we now hear was one of his favorites. He says, one of the brightest I ever taught, vivacious, you know, charming girl. He notes that Lily would have done well in his house, Slytherin, of which he used to be the head. Ah, this tracks. Slughorn is (laughs) clearly cunning and resourceful, and as we're starting to see, ambitious in his associations. Slughorn continues to gush about Lily, showing his ass in an effort to praise her. Your mother was muggle-born, of course. Couldn't believe it when I found out. Thought she must have been pure blood. She was so good. One of my best friends is Muggleborn, said Harry. And she's the best in our year. Harry's turning colder towards Slughorn, put off by this assessment and by the way he's speaking, quote, like an enthusiastic collector who's who'd been outbid at an auction. Slughorn defends himself. You mustn't think I'm prejudiced, he said. Oh, no, no, no. Haven't I just said your mother was one of my all-time favorite students? Again, it's hard to get a read on Slughorn. 
He seems totally insincere in his affection for Lily, but also to boil it down in perhaps reductive fashion, like a snob. Yes. Still, a snob is better than an evil person, and as Dumbledore is currently showing us, easy to play. Slughorn shows Harry his assembled photographs. All ex-students, he says, all signed. When Harry asks how all these people can find Slughorn to send him the Honeyduke sweets and Holyhead harpies, tickets he's boasting about, Slug's mood slinks. He says, I've been out of touch with everybody for a year. Harry observes that Slughorn seems shocked, unsettled, by his own declaration, taking stock of his own life after speaking the words aloud. In aligning with no one, in living in muggle home after muggle home, Slughorn has come to let fear rule him, depriving himself of all the perks that he claims he's on the run to protect. Quote, still, the prudent wizard keeps his head down in such times, he notes. Taking up a post at Hogwarts just now would be tantamount to declaring my public allegiance to the Order of the Phoenix. And why exactly would that be such a bad thing? He says, while I'm sure they're very admirable and brave and all the rest of it, I don't personally fancy the mortality rate. Ah, okay. On the one hand, this is naked cowardice. On the other, Mm -hmm. there's something sort of refreshing and relatable about Slughorn's shameless, open self-preservation. He's honest about it. I'm about it. He I like it. it. We all want to think that we're the hero, right? That we would rush to answer the call. But when that call actually comes, how many people pretend not to hear it? At least Slughorn is acknowledging that he's making this choice. It may not be a noble one, but he's owning it in his own way. Harry, always noble, naturally doesn't read it this way at all. Speaking to Slughorn without being able to, quote, quite keep a note of derision out of his voice. Sirius lived on rats in a cave, Harry thinks, and this plump, pampered man is complaining about what the taint of Hogwarts would do to his name. And yet, even though Harry isn't sure if he likes this guy, even though Dumbledore never asked him to, he finds himself issuing the sales pitch from the book. I reckon the staff are safer than most people while Dumbledore is headmaster. He's supposed to be the only one Voldemort ever feared, isn't he? Harry went on. Slughorn gazed into space for a moment or two. He seemed to be thinking over Harry's words. No, you know who has never sought a fight with Dumbly, he concedes. Yes, running from the Death Eaters is almost akin to declaring against them, in which case he might as well benefit from Hogwarts security measures. Just then, Dumbledore, done taking a shit, comes back in. What timing? Oh, there you are, Albus, he said. You've been in a very long time, upset stomach? No, I was merely reading the Muggle magazines, said Dumbledore. I do love knitting patterns. Not sure what's more amazing here. Slughorn basically openly asking Albus if he has diarrhea or Dumbledore's <laughs> reply. Dumbledore says, time to go. You're leaving? Man, Dumbledore is good. Everything is playing yes. out as he intended. Sure enough, as soon as they reach the front door, he calls after them. All right, all right, I'll do it. And after Sluggy demands a pay raise, Dumbledore chuckling leads Harry away. He tells Harry, well done, and Harry, who despite his fairly keen read on Slughorn and his sense that Dumbledore was positioning him on display in the room, remains a bit slow on the uptake here. Says in a surprised voice that he didn't do anything. And in a way, this is actually nice to see, because as much as Harry has learned from Dumbledore, as wise as he's growing to the ways of the world and war alike, he also maintains some of his innocence, even if that innocence can also sometimes be tied up in obliviousness. Dumbledore offers some honest illumination, albeit on delay. He says, Horace likes his comfort. He also likes the company of the famous, the successful, and the powerful. He enjoys the feeling that he influences these people. He has never wanted to occupy the throne himself. He prefers the back seat. More room to spread out, you see. Sounds like he belongs on Game of Thrones, doesn't he? He explains. 
that Slug used to handpick promising students at Hogwarts and formed, quote, a kind of club of his favorites with himself at the center. And then he warns Harry to be on his guard. He will undoubtedly try to collect you, Harry, he says. You would be the jewel of his collection, the boy who lived, or, as they call you these days, the chosen one. This is how Dumbledore is securing Slughorn's allegiance, and he hopes in time, though he's not telling Harriet here, the memory, by dangling Harry in front of him. They apparate to Elaine outside the burrow, and Dumbledore asks for a private word before Harry sets off to the house. From the book, I hope you will forgive me for mentioning it, Harry, but I am pleased and a little proud at how well you seem to be coping after everything that happened at the ministry. Permit me to say that I think Sirius would have been proud of you. Harry swallowed. His voice seemed to have deserted him. He's still not ready to talk about it. Until Dumbledore's letter had arrived, he'd languished in his despair, but Dumbledore's words are delivered with love and care. From the book again, it was cruel, said Dumbledore softly, that you and Sirius had such a short time together, a brutal ending to what should have been a long and happy relationship. Harry, in a testament to the regained comfort and trust that he and Dumbledore have found, allows himself to be vulnerable. From the book again, it's just hard, Harry said finally in a low voice, to realize he won't write to me again. His eyes burned suddenly and he blinked. He misses knowing someone cares, misses knowing he adds the unconditional love and support of someone who's like a parent to him. He's now lost that uncompromised allegiance twice, when he was one and when he was 15. But Harry says he won't crack up. Life's too short. And if his is going to be, he wants to take as many foes with him as he can. Dumbledore praises Harry's conviction and then asks if he's noted the not-so-much-leaks-as-floods, he puts it, in the Daily Prophet. Harry shows his anxiousness that everyone now knows. Not so fast, Dumbledore says. Only two people know. And they're right there in that spidery outhouse. But on that note about the prophecy, Dumbledore tells Harry that he thinks he should tell Hermione and Ron, quote, you do them a disservice by not confiding something this important to them. In time, as Harry makes his walk into the forest at the end of Deathly Hallows, he will come to believe that Dumbledore encouraged this so that more people would know about the hunt, that more people, should Harry fail, could finish the job. And that is true, but it's not the only truth. Dumbledore, who's lived a life of regret, defined by losing and missing his family, his friend, his love, also knows that the battle Harry is facing isn't one that he or anyone can fight alone. Quote, you need your friends, Harry. And as you so rightly said, Sirius would not have wanted you to shut yourself away. And then he tells Harry that he wants him to take private lessons with him this year. And really nothing could have prepared Harry for hearing this. Certainly not his 10 years in muggle isolation, nor his five years of asking Dumbledore questions that largely went unanswered. Quote, I think it is time that I took a greater hand in your education. Incredible. He then tells Harry two more things. One, to keep his invisibility cloak on him at all times, even at Hogwarts, just in case. Clearly, Dumbledore is readying for an attack. And two, not to poorly repay Molly and Arthur's kindness by risking his neck at their house, given the security measures in place there for his safety. He does not, however, say anything about fucking their daughter. <laughs> Chapter five, an excess of phlegm. When they arrive at the kitchen, Tonks is there. She's really let herself go. <laughs> Harry notices that she seems down. The result will soon learn of her troubled romance with Remus. When Dumbledore and Tonks make their leave, Harry settles for a snack. Crookshanks curled up in his lap. Mrs. Weasley asks what Harry thought of Slughorn and notes that Horace never had much time for Arthur. Maybe he only likes people who can count, who can read, <laughs> who are going to go somewhere in the world. Shouts to Arthur. I love him, but, you know. Shows old sluggy Molly goshes. Arthur's been promoted. 
It only took a devastating war and numerous mistakes, but that's okay. I'm dead serious. Like, what did Arthur do to get promoted? I'm sorry, but (laughs) I love my guy Arthur, but he's failing upward right now. It's very tough. Scrim set up new offices to help combat Voldy, and Arthur's heading the one tasked with sniffing out counterfeit defensive magical aids. And speaking of Arthur, he's late. When she turns to look at her trusty clock, Harry notices that every hand corresponding to a member of the Weasley family is pointing at moral peril, a sign of the times, if there ever was one. Just then, Arthur arrives, and he insists on going through the security question routine. All right, all right. What is your dearest ambition? To find out how airplanes stay up. Yes, this is our guy. And the MILF? What do you like me to call you when we're alone together? Even by the dim light of the lantern, Harry could tell that Mrs. Weasley had turned bright red. He himself felt suddenly warmer on the ears and neck and hastily gulped soup, clattering his spoon as loudly as he could against the bowl. Molly Wobbles whispered a mortified Mrs. Weasley into the crack at the edge of the door. Icons! You still have the marks. You still have the marks. After Harry fails to stifle his yawn, Mrs. Weasley sends him to bed in the twins' room. Hedwig, who had been waiting to make sure he arrives safely, because she is a truly wonderful pet, then takes off to hunt. Harry passes out immediately, as usual, failing to brush his teeth before bed. Concerning. And he is awoken, what feels like seconds later, by Ron and Hermione. Ron, frantically joyful at his early appearance. But they're both on eggshells. Hermione eyeing him with concern, Ron demanding to know where he went with Dumbledore and then badly concealing his confusion when the answer isn't more exciting. Thank the gods for Ginevra. (laughs) Who bounds in, absent any shrouded words or actions sitting right down on Harry's bed. Ooh, a sign of the things to come. And talking shit about a condescending housemaid. And Harry thinks that Ginny and Hermione are discussing the MILF and is rather shocked. But then he realizes he must be wrong, and this is a fucking hysterical moment, when Ginny answers Ron's defense by saying, we all know you can't get enough of her. Can't be talking about his mom at that point, right? Let's pause here. To applaud once again JKR's unrivaled gift for injecting levity and joy in the middle of such tense, fraught chapters. The burrow is home for us and Harry alike. Before Harry can ask who they're talking about, try to get some clarity here, the answer bursts into the room, silvery hair aglow, throaty voice croaking Harry's boner into existence. Eddie, it's been too long. (sighs) Floor's back. And she has robbed Mrs. Weasley of the pleasure of bringing Harry his breakfast. She kisses him on each cheek. And quote, he felt the places where her mouth had touched him burn. Oof. Really hope that uh, someone has given Bill some soothing Mertlap essence. Fleur turns to Harry from the book, swinging her silvery sheet of hair so that it whipped Mrs. Weasley in the face and reveals that she and Bill are engaged. After Fleur leaves the room, Mrs. Weasley denies the charge that she, quote, hates but does say that she's worried they're rushing in. It's no wonder with the Wizarding World at War, everyone's rushing into decisions, wondering if there'll be a tomorrow in which to make more decisions. It's a very human instinct. When the terror presses in, we want to draw the people we love near. Hermione, for her part, is revolted by Ron's stubborn, vila susceptibility, calling Ron's fucking hard-on for the woman Ginny has dubbed phlegm, quote, pathetic, but also tipping her hand. She's in love. The girls want Bill to fall for Tonks instead, and in the process of discussing how glum she's been, Hermione notes that Sirius was her cousin. She thinks Tonks is suffering from survivor's guilt. 
She had been battling Bellatrix before Bella killed Sirius. And she notes as well that Tonks metamorphosizing is faulty. And while Hermione is wrong about Sirius being the cause of Tonks' pain, it's Lupin, as we'll learn. It's worth considering this latest example of how motion can impact magic. In this case, Tonks' heartache is draining her of her ability, the lack of the allegiance she seeks in the form of a loving relationship with Remus has compromised the very nature of her being. Tonks has let herself go. <laughs> it looks awful. It's terrible. Oh my God. Just wait till she starts talking about how terrible. the bridesmaid dresses will clash horribly with Ginny's hair. Terrible. It's not going to look good. I'm just saying, it's my one day, you know, it's dream day. <laughs> yeah, it's Fleur's one day. She never it's gets any one, other days where she's the center wedding, of everything. It's the fucking wedding day. Yeah, she just gets one day where but the guys look at her. Saying, just it's like, one day. It is her wedding day. <laughs> it's her wedding day. After Mrs. Weasley summons Ginny away and Ginny swings, quote, her long red hair around in a very good imitation of Flora, which is... Definitely a normal thing for Harry to observe and think about someone he doesn't want to fuck, right? So many amazing Harry Ginny seeds planted early in this book here. Harry asks about Percy. He's still on the outs, which surprises Harry, given that Voldemort's return is now accepted fact. Quote, Dumbledore says people find it far easier to forgive others for being wrong than being right, said Hermione. I heard him telling your mom, Ron. Wisdom there. Once Dumbledore's name surfaces, Harry takes his opening, telling them, now that it's just the three of them, that Dumbledore will be giving him private lessons that year. Quote, Ron choked on his bit of toast and Hermione gasped. (laughs) This is a big deal. He decides that this is the moment to confide in his two dearest friends, as Dumbledore had encouraged him to. His heart is thumping as he says, quote, I don't know exactly why he's going to be giving me lessons, but I think it must be because of the prophecy. He forces himself to look at them, noticing that Hermione seems frightened, Ron amazed, as he tells them, quote, it looks like I'm the one who's got to finish Voldemort. At least, it said neither of us could live while the other survives. In the weight of the silence that greets these words, a Weasley's, Wizard Weasley's joke shop item punches Hermione in the face. (laughs) Jesus, and briefly vanishes her behind a puff of black smoke. And when they recover from this briefly shocking interruption, Hermione asks the only question that makes sense to ask someone you care about this deeply and want to protect. Are you scared? He answers with the trademark courage that he's always displayed, the kind that's allowed him, as Dumbledore said, to shoulder a grown wizard's burden. Quote, it seems as though I always knew I'd have to face him in the end. Ron says that Dumbledore wouldn't waste his time giving Harry lessons if he thought he was a goner. He must think you've got a chance, he says. Hermione agrees and begins to list off some possible lesson topics from the book. Harry did not really listen. A warmth was spreading through him that had nothing to do with the sunlight. Dumbledore is Harry's greatest teacher. Sirius was the closest thing he had in his conscious life to a parent. Snape, in many ways, is his greatest defender. Ginny will become his love, but Ron and Hermione are his heart and soul, the source of his strength. Their allegiance gives him faith in himself and his mission and the ever-important belief that one he has and Voldemort lacks, that there's something worth fighting for. Another masterful thing about these stories, the realities of everyday life still matter even in the face of war. When Harry reveals that owl results are set to arrive that day, the kids go all into a dizzy. The owls, carrying their owls, arrive. Harry's results, not bad. Outstanding. In defense, ease and charms, transfiguration, potions, herbology and caramagical creatures, an A in astronomy, a P in divination, and a D in history of magic. Pretty good look for our guy, passing everything but a subject in which he routinely fabricated his homework and had his own death predicted, and the subject in which he literally passed out during the exam while being catfished by Lord Voldemort. (laughs) 
Ron failed the same two subjects, but didn't earn any outstanding. Still, seven L's. As the MILF notes, more than the twins combined. And Hermione, nine O's and one E in defense. Harry's only regret is that his E in potions means he can't continue to newt level, or so he thinks at the moment. Meaning, the end of his ambition to become an Auror. It's the only career that really appeals to him. And what's more, in light of the prophecy, it feels like his destiny. Quote, wouldn't he be living up to the prophecy and giving himself the best chance of survival if he joined those highly trained wizards whose job it was to find and kill Voldemort? It's strange to think of Harry considering the rest of his life, his battle with Voldemort, stretching out into the infinite beyond. Harry, my guy, we got some news for you. It's only a seven-book series. <laughs> Chapter six, Draco's Detour. The burrow is a refuge, a place of happiness and warmth where family and friends can renew their allegiances to each other. But outside that cocoon, a storm is brewing. Strange events, deaths, disappearances, things which can only be explained by Voldemort's gathering strength. Remus Lupin, looking pale and careworn, comes over for Harry's sweet 16 and he brings terrible tidings. There's been, quote, another couple of Dementor attacks. Once upon a time, you know, just the beginning of order, any kind of Dementor-involved incident, certainly off the grounds of Azkaban, would have been considered shocking. So shocking it was greeted as a tall tale when Harry revealed it at his hearing. It's now happening so often that Lupin speaks as if he's resigned to them, and that's not all. From the book, and they found Igor Karkaroff's body in a shack up north. The dark mark had been set over it. Well, frankly, I'm surprised he stayed alive for even a year after deserting the Death Eaters. Great birthday conversation. Remus Lupin, everybody. Real barrel of laughs over here. Molly, of course, tries to steer the room toward lighter subject matters. All the hands on her clock are hovering over mortal peril. Can't everyone just enjoy some cake and not talk about death all the time? But it's no good. Bill has some news of his own. Florian Fortescue. Ice cream king of Diagon Alley. Harry remembers he used to give me free ice cream. Has vanished. Death Eaters, it is presumed, dragged him from his shop. How long until they come to the burrow? Mr. Ollivander is gone as well. Only the best wand maker in the wizarding world disappeared into the wind. There are other wand makers, as we learned in Goblet and as we'll see in Hallows, but as Lupin notes, Ollivander was the best. Quote, if the other side have got him, it's not good for us. The other side does have him, as we'll see in Book 7, and his intelligence leads Voldemort to the Elder Wand and sets up his essential conversation with Harry and Hallows as wand lore and the fundamental nature of a wand's allegiance yes. takes center stage. Harry, Ron, and Hermione's Hogwarts book lists alive with a nice surprise for Harry. Congratulations, he's been made captain of the Quidditch team, which means he can use the prefect's bathrooms, which doesn't matter because he never bathes. He doesn't <laughs> seriously just goes to sleep after eating. And so it's time for the annual trek to Diagon Alley to pick up school supplies. Molly, who now keeps her clock within arm's reach wherever she goes to monitor her family status, is frazzled with worry. At least the kids will travel by special ministry car, a mark of how seriously the government is taking things and of the tenuous but operational, at least, allegiance between the order and the ministry. Arriving outside the leaky cauldron, they meet their security detail. One Rubius Hagrid. Ministry wanted to uh, send a bunch of orders, but a dumbler said I do, said Hagrid proudly. It's a counterintuitive but a subtly wise choice. Sure, Hagrid, who we love, has a mouth as big as Big Baby Grop, that's strangely an advantage here. Number one, Hagrid can't be impersonated using Polyjuice. But even if he could, the second the person opens their mouth, you'd know it's not Hagrid because only Hagrid speaks like Hagrid. And then, moreover, his half-giant blood provides some level of resistance to magic, as we saw in Order when stunners bounced off him like ping-pong balls. And while Hagrid 
isn't exactly inconspicuous. He's one very, very large man. He's a lot more chill than a brigade of aurors. Most important, Harry feels comfortable with him. Hagrid is his friend. The ministry may be consulting Dumbledore on Harry's security, but no one is consulting Harry himself. The alliance surrounding him is working to protect him, but even now he's more informed than ever, but he's subject to their whims. The war is taking its toll everywhere, and Diagon Alley is not immune. The fantastical, colorful home of wizarding consumer therapy in the heart of London, once a source of joy and fascination for Harry, is a fearful place these days. The Leaky Cauldron is a ghost town, and in the alley itself, ministry posters preaching vigilance and giving security tips cover the shop windows. Some even show the moving images of wanted Death Eaters. The ice cream parlor is boarded up, along with several other stores. Meanwhile, bustling trade and amulets and various other homebrew defenses against the forces of darkness sprung up. Arthur's like, it's an off day. (laughs) It's it's like out in the middle of the street. It's like, are you doing stuff? It's an off day. Good thing no reporter's here to ask me for comment. (laughs) Harry can see the fear in people's faces as he walks around Diagon Alley. No one, he notices, is shopping alone. At Madame Malkin's robe shop, Harry, Ron, and Hermione encounter everyone's favorite Death Eater spawn. Draco Malfoy, and his mother, Narcissa, a.k.a. one of the ones who should be in jail. Should be clearly in jail. I mean, her husband is in jail and obviously should be. It kind of makes no sense that she's not in jail. Also, like, can we put a tail on her? Can we just follow her around or something? (laughs) Like, what are we doing? Known, Literally a known Death Eater husband captured at the ministry, and you're just like, yeah, it's fine. Listen, she's the spouse of a Death Eater. (laughs) Yeah, but listen— This is another we've come so far moment, as we can't help but think back to Harry's first trip into Madame Malkin's in Sorcerer's Stone, where he first met Draco. Here, Draco says, if you're wondering what that smell is, mother of mudblood just walked in. This is disgraceful behavior, and a little tip for everyone, when wizards or the children of wizards are out in public spouting pure blood bullshit, contact your nearest horror, because they might just be Death Eaters. Furthermore, when the children of known Death Eater says Death Eater shit in public, lock him up. Like, what more do you need? <laughs> His the father is a known Death Eater, was doing Death Eater shit, was in the ministry, and now he's just out on the street saying Death Eater shit with his mom, who's also saying Death Eater shit. It's like, put two and two together and just, like, lock them all up. Listen, lock them all up. In his defense, he's been saying this openly in the halls of Hogwarts for years, I mean, and it's never once been reprimanded. That's, that's a whole other <laughs> issue, that which I, you know I agree with you about. But Oh, sure. goodness. Harry and Ron, they whip their wands out. Hell yeah. They're ready to stand up for Hermione, always. Malfoy demurs. He's got an important part to play in what we will soon come to learn is the assassination of Dumbledore. Just that little thing. <laughs> so he can't get into trouble just now, but he still continues talking shit, remarking on Hermione's black eye, and Narcissa comes to her son's defense. But Harry doesn't back down. Going to get a few Death Eater pals to do us in, are you? <laughs> and she says, I see that being Dumbledore's favorite has given you a false sense of security, Harry Potter, but Dumbledore won't always be there to protect you. Now, She is, of course, threatening the future, a plan that she knows is in motion. Harry, though, looks mockingly all around the shop and says, wow, look at that. He's not here now. (laughs) So why not have a go? They might be able to find you a double cell in Azkaban with your loser of a husband. Fucking incredible. (laughs) This is good shit. Did you write this, Jay? This is like, whoa, Really, really good. Harry after your own heart here. Naturally, Malfoy, borrowing a Seamus line, is like, don't you dare talk about my mother. (laughs) 
Bitch, I just did. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think I did just say that. Are you gonna are you gonna step up and do anything about it? Man, this is very tough stuff all around. And then eventually, Narcissus and Draco take their business elsewhere, but not before a notable moment in which Madame Malcolm pokes Draco with a pin on his left forearm, and he reacts in pain. Later. After Harry sees another motion, we lock these from Malfoy. Harry will bring this up and put this together, pairing this with that other observation of Borkin and Burks to deduce that Draco has been branded with the dark mark—a literal sign of Draco's new allegiance. And also, they don't leave before Narcissa nakedly threatens Harry with a reference to Sirius's murder. Foul, wild that she is a free person. <laughs> Our friends, with the very nervous Mrs. Weasley, continue their excursion, at last reaching a glorious sight. Weasley's Wizard Weezes flagship, and only for now, store. You think a little thing like Voldemort's ongoing campaign of terror is going to dampen Fred and George's allegiance to fun and capitalism? No. These guys thrived under Umbridge's thumb. It's like the Russian mafia. Like, those guys made money in the Soviet Union? What do you think's going to happen when they go somewhere else? From the book, the left-hand window was dazzlingly full of an assortment of goods that revolved, popped, flashed, bounced, and shrieked. Harry's eyes began to water just looking at it. The right-hand window was covered with a gigantic poster, purple like those of the ministry, but emblazoned with flashing yellow letters. Why are you worrying about you-know-who? You should be worrying about you know poo, <laughs> the constipation sensation that's gripping the nation. It's just brilliant, honestly. Business friends is booming, and the twins are expanding. It's not just about vomit and feces and uncontrollable nosebleeds. Fred and George are war profiteers now. Some lucrative government contracts. Quote, well, we thought shield hats were a bit of a laugh, you know. Challenge your mate to jinx you while wearing it and watch his face when the jinx just bounces off. But the ministry bought 500 for all its support staff, and we're still getting massive orders. All manner of shield charm and other defense against the dark arts products are in the works. There's imported instant darkness powder, decoy detectors, and more. It's really wild it to is. think of Fred and George serving as ministry contractors when so many of their recent inventions sprung up in response to challenging authority to Umbridge's ministry-approved reign at Hogwarts. Not all allegiance stem from like-minded thinking or true affection. Sometimes it's about putting differences aside to pursue progress in whatever form it may take. Fred and George are legitimately rich by now. Oh, yeah. 500 minimum plus whatever the other shit is. Like, they're rolling in it. Oh, yeah. Literally, they're like, Harry, your gold's no good here. Just literally take anything. And then they're like, Ron, pay up. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, they have, like, there's, like, what's her name? Verity? <laughs> they have, like, an employee now. They do. Mr. Laid and off Mr. When Weasley. They <laughs> <laughs> Our friends are chatting with the twins about their wares and witnessing a mini family feud over Ginny's love life, dating several men, it Take. turns out. Stop slut-shaming Ginny, Fred and George, she and Ron. Again. She likes men. Let What's her have her fun. She's a physical How being. How many people did Fred and George fuck at I love the I love the line that we talked about when it's like, Harry noticed her long red hair sashaying around her back, and then he turned to Ron and said, was she always this thick? <laughs> when did Ginny fill out? Did <laughs> have an off-page? <laughs> when Harry spies Draco skulking off down the street alone. Where? Is sissy. There's no mystery where Draco and his mother's allegiances lie, by the way. Lucius 
as we have noted many times, led the Death Eater ambush at the ministry and is currently cooling his heels in Azkaban. He was present at the graveyard in Little Hangleton. This information is out there. Harry even named Lucius the Quibbler interview, guys. This is just, <laughs> that information is just out there. Yes. <laughs> Narcissa Harry knows is unlikely to have left Draco's side willingly, not in the state of war that exists right now. Her son gave her the slip. Something is up. Despite Hermione's very smart protestations, Harry, Ron, and Hermione get under Harry's invisibility cloak. And by the way, Harry must stink under that thing because he's disgusting. He doesn't <laughs> fucking bathe. And they track Draco to Borgen and Burks in Nocturne Alley. My favorite store. I love it. (laughs) Harry, you'll recall, has been there. Yes. He ended up in the shop, which specializes in dark magical items, when his first flu powder jaunt went haywire at the beginning of Chamber of Secrets. From the book, there in the midst of the cases full of skulls and old bottles stood Draco Malfoy with his back to them just visible beyond the very same large black cabinet in which Harry had once hidden to avoid Malfoy and his father. Oh, the cabinet! Draco will use that cabinet, we know. It's twin hidden somewhere in the room of requirement to bring Death Eaters into Hogwarts at the climax of this book. Harry, like Draco, knows that Hogwarts has a vanishing cabinet because Nick convinced Peeves to smash it in chamber to get Harry out of a spot of bother with Filch. And then the homie Graham Montague. Good old Graham. <laughs> poor, 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 sweet summer child Graham Montague got stuck in it when the almost murderous twins pushed him into it. And then he ended up for an unknown amount of time in a toilet. Sadly, Harry doesn't connect dots here at any point during the oh. ensuing school year as he works frantically to figure out what Malfoy could have been after in Borgen and Burks and what he could be up to at Hogwarts. He gets so close, though. So close. Our friends, desperate to hear what Malfoy is saying so animatedly to Borgen, who looks, Harry observes, resentful and fearful, deploy an extendable ear and manage to get some snippets of Draco's conversation with the shopkeeper. You know how to fix it? Possibly, said Borgen in a tone that suggested he was unwilling to commit himself. I'll need to see it, though. Why don't you bring it into the shop? I can't, said Malfoy. It's got to stay put. I just need you to tell me how to do it. As Jason just said, our heroes are so close to uncovering what Malfoy is after, and by extension, Voldemort's plot to assassinate Dumbledore, and yet they remain so far away. Draco and Borgen continue to haggle, and the shopkeeper insists that there's not much he can do if Draco can't bring whatever it is, again, the Hogwarts vanishing cabinet, in. Draco then shows Borgen something. What we will come to realize is the dark mark, the one that pained him in the robe shop moments ago. He also threatens the old man with a mention of infamous werewolf Fenrir Greyback, a close Malfoy family friend. I mean, why are there any free Malfoys? This is, like, <laughs> this is just wild that Draco Malfoy is allowed to walk around and do this. <laughs> Basically straight up say, hey, uh, be careful what happens or else my Death Eater adjacent good friend werewolf Fenrir Greyback might tear your throat out or something. Very tough stuff. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. They strike a deal, including that Borgen will keep, quote, that one, meaning we will realize the half of the cabinet pair that he has. And Draco strides out of the store. Our friends are confounded by what they've just heard. Harry asks whether they could see what Draco was pointing out when he said that one. And then this is the reply we get. No, he was behind that cabinet. Oh, this is agonizing to read. It's so painful. You just want to reach through the pages and shake them, help them. But we can't. They try to find out more. Hermione 
enters the store pretending to be friends with Draco and goes in. My good friend Draco. My good friend Draco. (laughs) Attempting to dig out more information. Ah, you know, I want to get him a birthday present. I don't want to get him something he's already reserved. Any chance he was in here 30 seconds ago reserving something and he could tell me what it was? Subtle. No dice, of course. Borgen isn't exactly team Draco or team Voldemort, but he traffics in the dark arts. He knows not to fuck with Draco after what just transpired. We will examine Draco's morality and culpability at length over the course of this book. But armed with full knowledge of what he's after and why, what's on his arm and what it signifies, who Greyback is and what associating with him means, the conclusion is it's not hard. very clear. Draco has aligned fully with the dark side. And not just that, he's in Voldemort's circle. His motivation to avenge his father is something we will take into account in time. But again... He's in Voldemort's inner circle. And remember, this is important. Not all of Voldemort's followers and supporters are actually Death Eaters. They're not actually all branded. Greyback, for example, is not. Nor is Narcissa. Draco has gone all in here. Even though Harry doesn't have all these details at this point in the story, he has a suspicion that cannot be quieted, that will become an obsession for him, literally as soon as next chapter. Harry's prejudice, particularly against Snape and Malfoy, has led him astray before. But as his suspicions grow in the coming pages, he's actually right. And the tragedy is that no one will believe him. Chapter 7, Slug Club. Harry's annoyed that Ron and Hermione aren't instantly obsessed with this Draco detour. And to Harry's credit, he's picked up on a lot of key clues. How happy Malfoy looked, which is never good. The keep that one safe wording, indicating that Malfoy's after another version of what he already has, not just a fix for his broken object. And boom, from the book, he's a Death Eater, said Harry slowly. He's replaced his father as a Death Eater. Our little gumshoe is really on it. Ron and Hermione hand waved this because of Draco's age, but Harry's piecing together the two-arm clues. Quote, he's been branded with the dark mark. Harry is used to Ron and Hermione pushing him, even questioning, but also used to them ultimately backing him. Even when Hermione was sure Harry was wrong to pursue Sirius at the ministry last year, she went. But they're depriving him of their allegiance here. It's uncommon, and he's, quote, annoyed, but absolutely convinced that he is right. The journey to King's Cross is smoother than usual, minus Ginny tripping Ron on purpose on his way to try to get a goodbye kiss from Flem, which is savage and hysterical. With stern orders of security, they pass through to the train. But before Harry boards, he asks Mr. Weasley for a word, and he shares his suspicions about Draco based on what they witnessed in Nocturne Alley. Arthur raises the same point about Draco being 16, and Harry, to his credit, does not back down. What are we getting, a fucking driver's license? license? Like, what are we doing? (laughs) Does anyone really know what you know who would or wouldn't do, Harry says. And it's a good point. Also, it's worth noting that if anyone did know that, yep. it would be Harry, yep. who has faced him five times at this point. And that's five and oh, baby. And also has had direct <laughs> access to his thoughts. Scoreboard. Like, maybe give Harry's instincts a little credence here. <laughs> Should Mr. we ask Harry what he thinks about uh, Voldemort? No. <laughs> what does he know? Mr. Weasley tells Harry that they raided Malfoy Manor and didn't find anything, but Harry insists. Now, Harry is wrong about the object in question being at Draco's house. It is, of course, as we would learn, at Hogwarts. But he's very right that it exists, and it's worth considering why everyone is so reluctant to side with him here. The Weasleys have special protection at their house because of Harry. They have ministry cars and an order guard because of Harry. Dumbledore is giving private lessons to Harry. It's all about Harry. 
And yet he can't get their instant trust or really even their attention here. How can he's only 16 be the justification for dismissing Harry's Malfoy worries when Harry, around whom so much of the war effort currently hinges, the fucking chosen one, is 16? People, come on. Harry's past Malfoy blinders certainly are part of it. But so is a certain ingrained belief that an adult wouldn't put this much on a child. And given the age-defying allegiance at play on the Order's side, this is baffling and a real shame. It's very, very strange. Not so much from Arthur, who's a doofus, but like, it's also one of those things where like, as an adult, it doesn't feel great to be like, showed up by a kid, to be wrong, and then like a 16-year-old kid is right. Mm-hmm. That doesn't feel great. Anyway, with Ron and Hermione off and doing their prefect shit, Harry asks Ginny to go find a compartment. She says, I can't, Harry. I said I'd meet Dean. See you later. (laughs) Right, said Harry, and he felt a strange twinge of annoyance as she walked away. He thinks it's because he's grown used to her presence, to her allegiance, but it's the beginning of so much more. Thank the gods for Neville and Luna, who arrived just in time to save Harry from growing throng of gawking girls. Neville notes that folks are even staring at him and Luna. They're with Harry now, and more importantly, they were at the Ministry, and everyone knows it. They're famous by association. Their alliance with Harry a force raising them to some level of relevance, even fame. We learn that Neville's gran is incredibly pleased. From the book, says I'm starting to live up to my dad at long last. She's bought me a new wand. It's incredible to see Neville speaking with such confidence and pride, experiencing the newfound but soon increasingly common sensation of people believing in him. When Luna asks about Dumbledore's army, Harry says... We don't need to keep going on. With the umbrage gone, they'll have proper lessons again. Neville protests, and Luna does too. She says, I enjoyed the meetings too. It was like having friends. <laughs> the DA meant most to people like Neville and Luna, who not only learned vital skills and grew as wizards, but found, as Luna says so baldly here, allegiance they'd never previously enjoyed. They got to be part of something, to grow with and support others and feel others support them too. So fierce is their desire to hold on to that feeling that they'll keep their DA coins on them, the few who do, and thus the few who answer the call for help when the Death Eaters invade the castle at books, and their loyalty is inspiring. Knowing that they spent all year waiting to feel that kinship again is just absolutely gutting. I love these two so much. Harry, again, to his credit, makes them feel good here. When Ramil Devane enters the compartment and introduces herself by saying, you don't have to sit with them, Harry says, they're friends of mine. And at this moment, here's the picture. Neville's ass is in the air as he hunts for Trevor, and Luna is wearing her Spectre Specs. Think back to just one year ago, when Cho popped by the train compartment as Harry and Luna and Neville sat coated in mimbula funk, and he felt mortified by being in the company of people so uncool. Now he's proud of who his friends are because he knows there's something way more valuable than hipster cred true allegiance, which Neville and Luna have given him time and again, never asking for anything in return for their loyalty and trust. Quote, people expect you to have cooler friends than us, said Luna, once again displaying her knack for embarrassing honesty. You are cool, said Harry shortly. None of them was at the ministry. They didn't fight with me. That's a very nice thing to say, beamed Luna. (laughs) She's the truest. This is just such a wonderful moment. Neville is pretty true too, and what's more, he could have been the chosen one. And as he gushes about Harry facing him, Voldemort, and tells Harry how much his grand talks about Harry's moxie, Harry can't help but find himself thinking about the prophecy and the ties that bind him and Neville. Quote, 
Neville's childhood had been blighted by Voldemort just as much as Harry's had, but Neville had no idea how close he had come to having Harry's destiny. The prophecy could have referred to either of them, yet for his own inscrutable reasons, Voldemort had chosen to believe that Harry was the one meant. Harry wonders if Alice would have sacrificed herself for Neville as Lily had for him. And he thinks, of course, she would have tried, but would it have worked? What if there had been no chosen one? Would Harry's own parents have dropped him off at the train that day instead of Ron's? And there's not a shred of bitterness or ill will in him as he contemplates these things, as he thinks about the life he has and the one Neville doesn't. It's yet another sign of how much he's matured, of how much more capable he is of considering choice and consequence than he used to be. Yet Harry is still at the point where he's setting full store by the prophecy, where he takes its letters as law. When he breaks free of the shackles of this logic at the end of the chapter Horcruxes, inspired by Dumbledore's relentless pushing and his own existential breakthrough, he will grasp at last the limits of destiny as a construct and the paramount power of his own intentions. The strongest allegiance of all, is Harry's to fighting for choosing what he believes is right. And here we get to watch as he continues to advance down the road of grappling with what being marked really means. When Hermione and Ron return, Ron shares that Malfoy isn't doing prefix duty. Harry snaps to attention from the book. Didn't this look as though Malfoy had more important things on his mind than bullying younger students? Before he can expand on his theorizing, a third year enters and gives Harry and Neville invites to Sluggy's compartment for, quote, a bite of lunch. Harry and Neville head for Sluggy's. And Harry briefly attempts to spy on Malfoy using the cloak, but that goes nowhere. We've talked about Slughorn's fondness for collecting influential folks, and this is our first taste of how he goes about it. You know, Slytherins get a bad rap in the wizarding world and in the discourse in our world surrounding this story. And some of that, by the way, is very fair. The great Salazar Slytherin himself was the progenitor of the blood purity ideology that has led to at least two wars that we know of and however many deaths. He made his own like fucking spank bank private room down in the <laughs> under Hogwarts where he could jack off and do whatever. He was a weird guy. And to paraphrase Hagrid, there's not a single witch or wizard who went bad who wasn't in Slytherin. Now, that's not quite accurate as Peter Ratfuck Pettigrew will attest to. Still, that a number of notable dark wizards did matriculate through Slytherin is a fact which adherents to the house must contend with. That said, ambition and a certain willingness to bend the rules or character traits which apply to many other people in this world, many of them not Slytherins, which brings us to Slughorn. Remember what Phineas Nigella said to Harry. We Slytherins are brave. Yes, but not stupid. For instance, given the choice, we will always choose to save our own necks. That to a T is Slughorn. He's a talented and driven magical being who would much rather stay out of fights than go charging into them. His allegiance is mainly to living his best life, just like it seems the vast majority of other Slytherins. You can't make the acquaintance of cool folks if you're dead. Sluggy will join the fight when it counts. Love Slug. Slughorn greets Harry, my boy, and Neville warmly and introduces them to the other unwitting pledges to what we'll come to know as the Slug Club. There's Blaze Zabini, whose mother... This is amazing. Is a famous beauty and probable serial killer? I mean, it's hinted very strongly that she is a seven-time murderess. <laughs> like, clearly a serial killer. Also there, Cormac McGlagan, whose uncle is a big muckety-muck at the ministry and who will soon try to get in Hermione's robes. Hello. 
Marcus Belby, whose uncle invented Wolfsbane Potion, the potion you will recall that Snape made for Lupin all throughout Prisoner of Azkaban, and Ginevra Weasley, sister of two of the Quibblers 20 and 20 young entrepreneurs list, and performer of an exemplary bat bogey hex. Love this. This is such a great Ginny is so dope moment when we learn that she's only there because Slughorn witnessed her performing a hex and was like, that was marvelous. Come have my pheasant with me. Slughorn presides over the gathering with unalloyed rush. Hobnobbing with notable folks, dropping names, grooming future generations of influential people. This is his jam. He's in heaven, but he's also quick to remove his affection, depriving young Belby of a pie as soon as Belby makes it clear that he isn't all that tight with his uncle. I have never really... (laughs) (laughs) Amazing moment. Slughorn's not interested in wasting time on the unremarkable. He needs his allegiances to bear fruit. That's right preferably pineapple that he can then crystallize or that someone else can crystallize for him and then give to him in a honeydew hamper. All of that sounds great to me. Slughorn seems to be reserving his judgment about Neville, but he overtly fawns over Harry. The chosen one they're calling you. Harry doesn't want to lie in response to Slughorn's questioning, but he doesn't want to speak about it either. And Neville and Ginny spare him the trouble by saying, we were there. No one heard the prophecy. And Slughorn's like, you were there? Oh, <laughs> Harry knows, though, that he's only bought time. Slughorn will keep nibbling on this particular piece of pineapple. The prospect of adding the Chosen One to his Slug Club collection isn't one he'll let go of quickly. It is, after all, ultimately why he agreed to return to Hogwarts. As they're walking back down the train, Harry's struck by what we can only call madness. The idea to follow Zabini, son of the mass murderer, (laughs) into Malfoy's compartment under the cloak and spy on Malfoy. Maybe if Harry's friends and Mr. Weasley had been a bit more willing to indulge him, he wouldn't be so reckless. Who knows? From the book, nobody else seemed prepared to take Harry's suspicions seriously, so it was down to him to prove them. He's not quick enough to slip into the open door, so he sticks his foot to prevent it closing. Clearly, not a hype beast who needs to protect his shoes. Listeners, Mallory and I need a plug. Give us a plug. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Harry pushes the door as Abini's trying to close it, shoots in, leaps into Zabini's seat, pulls himself into the luggage rack just for a moment. His Zarina Air Max 97 (laughs) off-whites briefly (laughs) exposed by the cloak riding up. I would literally kill someone for a pair of those shoes. (laughs) (laughs) And he pulls himself up onto the luggage rack. Even for Harry, always prone to reckless behavior. This is so stupid. This This is bad. This is really bad. Come on, guys. Harry knows his feet and ankles were visible for a moment. <laughs> and everyone is, like, trying to get off whites. Like, those are the ones. <laughs> so it's like. <laughs> Harry from the rack sees, and this is disgusting, sees Pansy stroking Draco's head as Malfoy asks what Sluggy wanted. Love is love. Not happy with the answer, wanting, of course, to be included in any group of the notable and instantly sliding into my father <laughs> mode. Zamini, a true hard-ass, tells him not to bank on an invite. I don't think Slughorn's interested in Death Eaters. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I love that. It's, it's, it's great. Common knowledge. It's great. Literally <laughs> just out there. <laughs> Malfoy's like, whatever, who needs this guy? He's just a teacher. And hey, I might not be here next year. Pansy's like, what? What? He says, I might have, uh, you know, moved on to bigger and better things. Harry's heart races. From the book again, do you mean him, Pansy asks? Malfoy wants to seem important, especially after the slug slight. 
But he also really means what he's saying yes. from the book again, when the Dark Lord takes over. Is he going to care how many owls or newts anyone got? Of course he isn't. Maybe. He's, he was smart and uh, yeah, also he's a was, snob. He did care about education. Yeah. Why do you think he like Barty Crouch? Education. education. Yeah, this is, so this is actually wrong of yeah. Malfoy, which is like classic Malfoy. <laughs> education is actually incredibly important to, to the ideology. Yes. It's just that they don't want people who aren't pure blood to have access That's to the exactly education. exactly right. So Malfoy, again, you idiot. fucking idiot. <laughs> He's peacocking here, but also making a case that basically boils down to, it's about your allegiances, not your test scores. And then he says the thing that Harry's been waiting to hear. Maybe he doesn't care if I'm qualified. Maybe the job he wants me to do isn't something that you need to be qualified for. (laughs) Kind of, does this make any sense, Draco, you fucking idiot? (laughs) Harry's so overcome by what he's witnessed, basically gaping like an adult, just like Pansy. Mrs. Goyle going for his bag and lets out a gasp of pain, which Malfoy hears when Goyle's suitcase hits Harry in the head. Man, He's worried Malfoy is going to attack, then relieved when he doesn't, and he thinks, oh, he didn't actually hear me, but it turns out Draco was just waiting. He lets everyone else exit. As soon as they're alone, Malfoy lowers the blinds so that he can attack his greatest enemy, Petrificus Totalus! Harry tumbles to the floor, paralyzed. The cloak trapped beneath him, his body revealed. You didn't hear anything I care about, Potter but well, I've got you here, and he stamps hard on Harry's face. Harry felt his nose break, blood spurting. That's from my father. Now let's see. And he covers Harry with a cloak treading on his fingers as he leaves him behind, alone, vulnerable, acting recklessly and rashly, pulling himself away from his alliances of friends, putting himself in peril. Harry, what have you done? Tough look for our guy. Mal? Yeah? Pack my own lunch. The trolley, as I remember it, is heavy on licorice wands and a poor old man's digestive system isn't quite up to such things. Pheasant? Anyone? (laughs) No, thanks. In that case, please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section. Teach us what we need to know about Hogwarts Express Choo Choo. Wow, at long last. Here we go. The Hogwarts Express isn't just a scarlet steam engine of plot, nor is it a mere method of travel for magical Britons. Rather, it's a gateway to a magical home and Harry's favorite place on Earth. And it's the site of a number of momentous occasions in the series. It's where Harry first befriends Ron and meets Hermione, where James first sees Sirius and Lily and makes an enemy of Snape, and where Albus, Severus, Potter, and Scorpius Malfoy first realize that the seemingly kindly trolley witch has claws for hands seemingly <laughs> and likes to turn pumpkin pasties into bombs. Shouts to Cursed Child. <laughs> the Hogwarts Express is even more than that. It is also like indoor plumbing, one of the few things that wizards stole from muggles. In this case, literally stole. This particular caper was long in the making, dating all the way back to 1692, when the establishment of the International Statute of Secrecy meant that witches and wizards needed a new and clandestine way to travel to Hogwarts. For more than a century, though, they struggled to find the right method. In the restricted section from Goblet of Fire about porkies, we discussed the effort to use porkies and all the ways that went wrong, from students not being able to find their arranged objects to epidemics of porky sickness, which left students in the hospital with nausea to start the school year. And that was before Fred and George were selling puking pastilles. The ministry sought a superior solution, but was hopeless. The idea of flu powder was discarded by one Hogwarts headmaster after another, who were concerned that opening the school to this means travel would pose a safety risk throughout the year. 
And listen, there's no safer place, so you can't have safety risks. Other methods of travel will be too visible to muggles or too cumbersome for students taking trunks and pets with them. So the smartest and mightiest magical people in Britain just sort of floundered about for 100-plus years until Minister of Magic Adeline Gamble had a brainstorm in 1830. Gamble was a controversial minister because she had a streak of Arthur Weasley running through her veins. But in this case, her fascination with muggle inventions proved most useful as it brought her the idea of using a train to transport students in mass to the Scottish Highlands. There were just two problems. The first was logistical because Gamble might have been futuristic and progressive in thought, but she was also like Arthur Weasley in that she had no idea how these newfangled muggle inventions actually worked. No word on whether she could read numbers. <laughs> no witch or wizard alive could build a proper engine. A true indictment of wizarding education here. Very tough. Let alone a fully functional locomotive. The second problem was one of power because pureblood families balked at the idea of appropriating a muggle machine, thinking it unsafe, unsanitary, and demeaning. And listen, these people vanish their own shit. So if they think something's unsanitary... <laughs> Solving the second issue was easy, as Gamble declared that students would ride the Hogwarts Express to Hogwarts or not attend the school at all. And this show of force swiftly silenced the pure blood objections. The first issue was also solved, albeit with quite a bit more complexity. 167 memory charms and the largest ever mass concealment <laughs> charm performed in Britain later. A brand new train was steaming into Hogsmeade and a muggle railway company and crew woke up with the distinct impression that they were all forgetting something important. Thus, through this actual attack on muggles, the Hogwarts Express was born. Choo-choo. <laughs> Jason? Yes? Judging by your look of stunned disbelief, Isaac yes. did not warn you that it was time for the seven. However... Let us assume that you have invited me warmly to split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Prince chapters three through seven. Because seven remains the most powerfully mm -hmm. magical number, I'll go first. Number one, we get an incredible amount of Regulus foreshadowing in this stretch of chapters, subtle reminders that prime us for the RAB reveal and theorizing to come. First, from Dumbledore, when explaining that Harry has inherited 12 Grimald Place. Quote, Sirius was the very last of the line, as his younger brother, Regulus, predeceased him, and both were childless. Next, from Slughorn, when discussing his trophy students. Quote, The whole Black family had been in my house, but Sirius ended up in Gryffindor. Shame. He was a talented boy. I got his brother, Regulus, when he came along, but I'd have liked the set. <laughs> what a way to speak about actual human beings. And then, from Lupin, when sharing the news of Karkaroff's death, quote, well, frankly, I'm surprised he stayed alive for even a year after deserting the Death Eaters. Sirius's brother, Regulus, only managed a few days, as far as I can remember. Ah, we will learn much more about what happened there in Creature's Tale and Deathly Hallows. Notably, all three of these mentions occur in paragraphs that are primarily about characters that we think, at the time we're reading these passages— are much more important, Sirius and Karkaroff, pulling our attention elsewhere as the Regulus clues continue to mount. Number two, when Slughorn is listing off his favorite pupils of the past, he names Dirk Cresswell, making particular note of his muggle background. This will become tragically important for Cresswell and Hallows when the head of the Goblin Liaison Office becomes a victim of the Muggle-Born Registration Commission. After escaping custody, he goes on the run with Dean 
Ted Tonks, Grip Hook, and Gornuck. What a fucking wild crew. <laughs> but is eventually captured by the Snatchers and murdered along with Ted and Gornuck. His death was announced on a broadcast of Potter Watch. Number three, beyond the vanishing cabinet, tons of other magical items that Harry and Co. observe in Diagon and Nocturne Alley will wind up playing a larger role later in this book or in Deathly Hallows. Malfoy will use the Peruvian instant darkness powder that Fred and George sell when he is infiltrating Hogwarts. And while we don't see the Hand of Glory here in these chapters, Ron does bring it up, and Malfoy will use it to provide light for himself and the intruders as they breach the castle and everyone else is in that darkness. Meanwhile, the love potions from Weasley's Wizard Weezes also play a role. Hi, Ramelda. And the necklace that Hermione asked Borgen about is, we assume, the cursed opal one that nearly kills Katie Bell after tough. Malfoy puts it to ill use. Tough stuff for Katie Bell. Extremely tough stuff. And in Hallows, Harry will use the decoy detonators from Weasley's Wizard Weezes to cause a diversion so that he can break in to Umbridge's office. All this made me think of uh, our girl Marietta. Shouts to Marietta for your appearance in this book. Still scarred up, looking terrible. And Harry's reaction to that, much like yours, to laugh. <laughs> I mean, listen, we're in war here. <laughs> Number four, also in Diagon Alley. Harry's extra protection is Hagrid rather than a pack of auras, which foreshadows the Seven Potters mission in Hallows. When the Order leaks, their plan is for auras to take Harry to safety it actually sends him with Hagrid on a different date. Number five, speaking of Hallows again. When Dumbledore discusses Sirius's will, Harry thinks that he, quote, never wanted to set foot in number 12 Grimmauld Place again if he could help it. Well, he will. In Hallows, he will use the house as a hideout and a base of operations, learning essential information there from Creature. Relatedly, it is worth noting that while Malfoy is the one who says, quote, I mean, I might not even be at Hogwarts next year. I might have uh, moved on to bigger and better things. It is actually Harry who will take that route next year, realizing that he has bigger and better priorities than what lie at Hogwarts, specifically hunting horcruxes. Number six. When Dudley's in the room with the wizard, Rowling specifically describes his pink feet and, quote, small piggy eyes calling back to his first encounter with the wizard other than Harry, which resulted in that piggy tail. Tough stuff for our guy, Dudley. Extremely tough. Number seven, listen. Binge mode is a family. That's right. And that means that we support each other. Even Zach Cram, who really wanted us to tell you that even though we're making jokes about Molly Wobbles being overtly sexual, and it is, it clearly refers to the naughty bits, he wants us to tell you that it's actually probably a very sweet nickname because the term collywobbles is slang for butterflies in the stomach. Mal, Slughorn probably hasn't heard I'm on the train, just like today's champion. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're sadly terrible dishing out some last minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. It's very tough. Don't stuff feel right good now. about this. But you have to respect the hustle of. Draco, why is he free, Malfoy? Tough look for your guys, Mallory and Jason. Draco Malfoy <laughs> is out here on the streets basically telling everyone he's a fucking death eater. And getting away with it. Showing people the fucking dark mark. <laughs> yes. His dad is in jail. Yep. Facing like a bid. Yeah. A legitimate fucking beef. And he's out there being like, yo, I'm also in the Voldemort gang. And people are just like, well, well, 
That's Fix this one for me. Save well, that one for me. There's nothing we can do. Very little we can do about this without any kind of real proof. Roll up his sleeve. Well, we can't do that. Don't put your anyway, pins near me. First binge mode win for Draco Malfoy. First and fuck, hopefully last. Scares the fucking pants off Borgen, which is no small feat. This is a guy who traffics in dark shit, and yes. he's like terrified of this. Literally child. used to employ Tom Riddle. Yeah. <laughs> Think about the kind of scum this man has dealt with. And also like name drops Grayback. I mean, Slughorn would be like, oh, my boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't invite you before. Yeah, I mean, it's gross, but it's a flex. He's obviously working with great success so far to implement his plan. And though we do not have all the details here at this point, and we will learn, it's the Vanishing Cabinet plot, which, listen, we try to stay in the moment with our wins. But taking the full Vanishing Cabinet plan into account, we have to say this is a genius plan. Not even Dumbledore anticipated that as a weakness in the castle's defenses. And to use the rumor requirement, the whole thing about it is actually very, very smart. Basically, like Pansy Parkinson spits in her palm and jacks him (laughs) off in the compartment, which is great. (laughs) Outsmarts Harry and literally stomps on the Chosen One's face, which again, we don't condone, but I mean, that's how you win. That's how you get a win. Man, tough stuff. Oh. All right, friends, weak chest, wheezy, rheumatism too. Can't pod like we used to. Well, that's to be expected. Old age, fatigue. Thanks gods for Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope you had as much fun as we did today that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey and that you'll join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing Prince, chapters eight through 11. Until then, let us step into the studio and pursue that flighty temptress. Binge mode. Getting married. Yes, I can't wait. I'm on my beauty going to come. Well, we're going to invite Tonks to Tonks, Tonks, Tonks. <laughs> she let herself go. She looks terrible. She's so tired all the time. It's so sad, Daddy. What's wrong with her? I don't know. You know, me and Bill been fucking all night. <laughs> Make me so hungry. Is this food so good, Molly Weasley? My mommy is so good. Oh my god, famished. Fucking bill day and night. <laughs> <laughs>